19 to 28, if you're not there already. Daniel 7, 19 to 28. Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, even as we prepare our hearts to come to this passage, as we've meditated on the truths of this passage in song, even as we've read this passage, so we join our hearts once again to the words that we have just proclaimed, worthy, as we behold our God seated on your throne, what a scene it is that we see here in Daniel 7. The truth of Scripture. That you are a God who reigns. That you alone are worthy. That there are great beasts and great enemies, but there is a greater God. And that is our hope as your people. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we come, and as we adore you this evening, that you would be lifted high. That you would get the glory that is due to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you ever read a good book, and you get partway in, and you find a hero in a struggle, something's going on, and you, and you start to wonder, is he going to get out of this? And, and if you're like me, you kind of get to that point, and you're tempted to skip ahead to the end, to kind of look and see, is, is his name still in there at the end? Does, does he get out of this? Does he survive? I, I read a lot of history. It's, I can't really do that in history, because I already know the ending of the story. But we do that because it gives us hope, right? We're, we're rooting for this character. We're rooting for this, this hero, whoever it may be, the main character in this book. We're rooting for them. And in the course of this book, whatever's going on, it seems like they're not going to get out. The situation that they find themselves in, whatever is going on, it's, it's not good. And so what do we do? We jump ahead to the end. I want to see, is he there at the end? Does he get out of this? I can get through this section easier if I know that he gets out in the end. That's what Daniel 7 is. Daniel 7 is where we get to jump to the end. And we get the assurance of we know what happens at the end. It's... it's kind of funny when you, when you think about it. Why, why of in all the books in the Old Testament, why is Daniel the one, in the midst of everything that's going on, why is Daniel the one where God unfolds this view of history, this big picture? Why not Ezekiel or Jeremiah or, or someone? Why, why is it Daniel? Why is it now? Why is it here? We don't know the mind of God. We just look at the context of Daniel. His people are in trouble. They're in exile. Trial after trial has come. Their land has been taken away. And God has made all these promises. And yet it seems that now they've lost all of that. 
What hope is there? In Daniel 7, God takes Daniel and moves him and lets him see the end of the story. Gives him hope to get through in the present. And we have that same hope as we come to Daniel 7. Daniel 7, 1 to 18, the first part that we looked at last week, it's kind of the big picture. As we come to this last part, Daniel 7, 19 to 28, the end of this chapter, it's still, we're still looking at history. We're still looking at the end of history, of all of history, a panoramic view. But we kind of zoom in a little bit more and get some more details of this big picture that we've gotten. So as we work our way through this, we'll see a great beast and a greater God. A great beast and a greater God. First thing we see in verses 19 to 22 is a great beast. In the first part of this chapter, Daniel has seen this vision, these beasts that rise up. We noted how the beasts of Daniel 7 match the statue back in Daniel 2. In fact, some would say, and, and I think it's a fair point, it, it makes sense, that the difference between the beast and the statue of metal is the statue of, of metal and stone and gold and all that. That's from man's perspective. These kingdoms look powerful. They look great. They look fascinating. But the beasts are from God's perspective. They are just ugly. And so you have this, this picture. It, it goes along with exactly what we saw as we worked our way through Daniel 2. These same kingdoms that rise up, these kingdoms that will be defeated. But Daniel here asks the question, then I, after seeing this, after seeing these beasts that rise up, after seeing this, these ten horns and this little horn that rises up and throws down three horns, after seeing the, the glorious triumph of the Son of Man. I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast. Daniel's interested in this fourth beast. This fourth beast is different than the other beasts. We've been told that. And like, that's stressed all throughout. This fourth beast is different. We see it again here. I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others. How was he different? Well, it stands out from all the others primarily in power and in ruthlessness. It was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful. Teeth of iron and nails of bronze. Well, nails of bronze, that's a new detail that we did not see in the first 18 verses. But it just helps to, to further cement, to show the fierceness, the power, the greatness of this beast. And what does this beast that is so big and powerful and dreadful, what does it do? With the teeth of iron and these nails of bronze, it devours, it breaks in pieces and tramples the residue with its feet. It shows no mercy. Truly this is a dreadful beast. So you can understand why Daniel is interested in and tell me more about this fourth beast. And on top of this dreadful beast that breaks and tramples, 
You have this little horn that rises up on its head. The ten horns that were on its head. And the other horn which came up before which three fell, namely the horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words. These appearances, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. Verses 19 to 20, Daniel's kind of asking a question. I want to know more about this beast, this specific beast who, who is great and does this and does this and has these ten horns and this little horn. This is the specific beast which I am interested in. Because as I was watching this beast, that same horn, the little horn that grew to be great, as we came to see as the Antichrist, that same horn was making war against the saints. He was making war against the saints. He is great and he is powerful and he has turned his attention against the saints. His war is not against nations. It's not a political war. It's a holy war against saints. And, and perhaps this is the most surprising part, not only is he making war against the saints, he's prevailing against them. It's a surprising detail. That's not given in verse 8. That's not given in verses 11 to 12. He's making war against them, and he's prevailing against them. That, that's surprising to us when we read that. Because that seems to go against the whole message of Daniel, does it not? Everything that we've seen in Daniel is that God is in control, that God is great, that, that even behind these kings and these armies that are moving, God is still at work. He has not forgotten his people. He has not abandoned his people. And yet what we see here is that the saints are being attacked and they're losing. This little horn is prevailing. What is going on? Has God lost control? Until. Verse 22, that's an important word. Until. He was prevailing against the saints until the Ancient of Days, God Almighty, came. And judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. We see that in verses 9 to 12. We're kind of rehashing it here. The saints of the Most High are judged right. The beast is guilty. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. The time came. Those three words are important. They indicate an already established time. The time is at hand. It has come. This was a time that has been established in eternity past. And it was never in doubt. Even as this beast rose up, as his horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them, there was a limit to it. From our perspective, from the perspective of these saints against who war is being made here in this chapter, it doesn't seem like God's in control anymore. It seems like, like things have gotten out of control. Because they don't see the big picture like we have the privilege of here. 
They don't know the mind of God. They don't know what God is doing. But the time is coming. And as we come here to this verse, the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. It was an already established time, never in doubt. So we see in verse 22, any doubts that we had in verse 21 of God's sovereignty, maybe God had lost control, any doubts are taken care of here in verse 22 because the time came, reaffirming the message of Daniel, a sovereign God. The time came. A great beast, a powerful beast. Verses 23 to 28, then a greater God. Verse 23 says, then he said, so now as we come to these verses, for the first several verses, it, it almost rehashes what we see now. This is by almost our third time through it. Daniel, we, we've seen the dream in the first, the, the vision in the first 18 verses. Verses 19 to 22, Daniel asks a question. I want to know more about this great, this powerful beast who, who triumphs. And, and he gives all these details. And now in verse 23, the angel, he said, the angel from verses 16, the angel answers his question, and he again goes through everything that we've already seen. Then he said, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, greater and more powerful, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. Again, we have seen this, that this kingdom is powerful, it is great. It conquers the whole world, brutally setting up a worldwide kingdom. And out of this beast, this kingdom, the ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom. These ten kings are the same ten horns that we see in Revelation 17, verses 12 to 14. Another picture using these same ten horns, but it helps us in Revelation 17 to see that they are ruling together contemporaneously. This is not an epics through history. These ten kings are ruling together at the same time. They arise from this kingdom of this, this, this beast, this kingdom that has made a worldwide kingdom. And out of these ten, and another shall rise up after them. This is the little horn from which we've seen so much. This little horn is in other places in Scripture called the man of lawlessness. In 2 Thessalonians 2.3. In 1 John 2.18, he's called the Antichrist. In Revelation 13-17, through 17, he's called the Beast. He rises up from among these ten kings in this kingdom. He shall be different from the first ones. He is more powerful. He is more fierce. He's described with eyes and a mouth. He shall subdue three kings. Three of the original ten kings will challenge him, but will be cast down. Verse 25, he shall speak pompous words against the Most High and shall persecute the saints of the Most High. He shall speak pompous words. This little horn 
This Antichrist, this beast, has absolutely no regard for God or his people. He is shocking in his arrogance, shocking in his blasphemy. In fact, we see in 2 Thessalonians 2.4 and Revelation 13, verses 8 and 12, that he sets himself up as God. He demands worship. And he persecutes the saints of the Most High. And shall intend to change times and law. Times and law, it's best understood as religious observance and tradition. So times would be like religious um, holidays. Anything that points to has to do with religion. He's setting up an entirely secular kingdom devoid of all religion or religious ties. I mean, even the way that we keep time and think of history is tied to religion. The death of Christ. And then again, we see this reality. And the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. The saints shall be given into his hand. Once again, we see the shocking truth of verse 21. But there's an added glimmer of hope here. A little reminder. The saints shall be given into his hand. It implies purpose. It implies that there is one greater who gives. As powerful as this little horn is, there is one greater. He does not take the saints. He is, they are given to him. Again, consider the context of this. Daniel and his people, the people of God, are in exile. They are under a king that they do not know, that does not care. They find themselves in a situation similar to this. And here is a little reminder that even in exile and persecution, God reigns. They did not fall into exile. They were given into exile. And the same God that sent them into exile will bring them out of exile. Just as in the future, these saints do not fall into the hand of this little horn. This is no accident. This is not because this little horn is more powerful than God. These saints will be given into his hand by one who is greater. And as we will see, the one who gives them will deliver them. It will be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. Again, indicating the sovereign hand of God. They are given and they're given for a specific amount of time. Time, times, and half a times, three and a half years that they are given into his hand. And they are not given into his hand for a second more than God allows. Verses 
through 25, it's a terrifying picture for God's people. The time of persecution. A time, really, of exile, almost. But verses 26 to the end of the chapter is a glorious reality. Because here we find this little word in Scripture that is so often such a beautiful and powerful word. The saint shall be given into, the hand, into his hands for time, times, and half a time, but... So often in Scripture, that little word gives so much hope. But the court shall be seated. It's the court we see in verses 9 to 10. The court we see again in verse 22. It's the court of God's judgment. This little horn will do what he wants. He will set up his false kingdom He will attempt to change these times and laws. He will be ruthless. The saints will be given into his hands and he will triumph for a season. But the court shall be seated. And they shall take away his dominion. His dominion that was given to him will be taken from him to consume and destroy it forever. As his power and cruelty are emphasized in the verses previous, so here his destruction is emphasized. In fact, one commentator that I looked at, Stephen Miller, uh, says this. He says, in the original language, his destruction here is emphasized in unusually strong language. They will take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then, then, note the timing. It's important. As you put together your eschatology, as you look at Scripture, Christ's kingdom is not established until after the Antichrist is defeated. Then, at that point, then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. At that time, after this little horn, this beast, this man of lawlessness, this antichrist, after he is cast down and destroyed and cast into the lake of fire, the kingdoms of the earth will be delivered to Jesus, who will establish a true and a just worldwide kingdom. And notice that it is an earthly kingdom. And he will reign. And those who are persecuted who were given into the hand of this beast, this Antichrist, will be the ones who reign with him. It is the people, the saints of the Most High, those who are gods who will reign with him in this kingdom. And unlike all these powerful kingdoms of men that rise up, regardless of how powerful they may be, how big their armies How great the land that they rule, regardless, it all comes to an end. But there is one kingdom that will never end. And it is this, the kingdom of our God. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. It's a kingdom that knows no end. As we see in Daniel 7, verses 13 to 14 already. As we see even into the New Testament, Philippians 2, verses 9 to 11. 
This is a kingdom that will never end. And that's where Daniel's dream ends. It's where his vision ends. It's a terrifying vision. This beast, all these beasts that rise up out of this ocean, they are great beasts. And this horn that will rage war against the saints is great and he is powerful. But there is one who is greater and his kingdom will be established and his kingdom will not come to an end. And that is the end. That's where God takes Daniel and he takes him to the end and he says, look, in the end, I win. In the end, all these kingdoms of earth will be cast down and I will reign alone. My kingdom is everlasting and all dominion shall serve and obey him. Verse 28, this is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. It's kind of interesting. You'd you, you think that, that, you know, the first time you read this, you're thinking, man, why is Daniel troubled? You'd think that he'd be jumping for joy, right? He'd be excited. This is great news. Look what happens in the end. I know the end of the story. You think what Daniel has just seen. It is no light matter. Think of the destruction that he has beheld. Saints, as they are at war with this beast, he's overwhelmed by both the cruel and wicked nations of men, the destruction that they will bring. At the same time, he has to be moved greatly by the glory of God who will conquer. In fact, all throughout Scripture, those who get a glimpse of God, it is not a light thing. It makes sense that at the end of this, that Daniel, he is shaken up. My thoughts greatly troubled him. My countenance changed. I think anyone's countenance would change if they saw that. But I kept the matter in my heart. As we come to this passage, Daniel 7, we, like Daniel, are given a picture. We're allowed to cheat, to skip to the end, to see what happens when it's all over. And that gives us hope for the present. Just as when you're reading that book, Okay, I know that this guy is still around in the end. I know what happens in the end. So I can get back to my chapter now and I know I can get through it because I know what happens. We'll get through it. In the end, God wins. The purpose of Daniel 7 is hope for God's people in all ages. The purpose of Daniel 7 is not that we would get ready for the Antichrist. That we'd have our eyes open, ready for him. The purpose of Daniel 7 is that we'd have our eyes open, ready for our coming king. Even the most powerful of men and kingdoms are subject to our God. 
And at the end, when all is said and done, our God wins. Daniel 7 should give us hope for the present. It gives us perspective. In fact, it's the same, our application is the exact same as it was last week as we looked at the beginning of this chapter. This chapter gives us perspective. We gain perspective. We see the big picture. We know what happens in the end, and that gives perspective to everything that we might be going through now. Whatever we face, whether it's personal attacks by people, whether it's a religious liberty that is being challenged, whether it's something that comes as a result of the sin-cursed world that we live in, cancer, or whatever sickness it may be, in the end, our God is in control, and he will win, and he will reign. So gain perspective. See your life with this eternal perspective, knowing the end and be encouraged. And remember the hope that you have. Seeing the end doesn't necessarily make it any easier in the present. It gives us hope. It gives us a reason to keep going. But it doesn't take away the pain of the present. But remember hope. Gain perspective, remember hope, and find motivation. Motivation to obey, to go, to make disciples, regardless of the consequences, to live godly lives in this age, to proclaim the gospel. Angel 7 is a chapter that gives us perspective, calls us to remember the hope that we have, and to find our motivation for obedience and faithfulness in the present. It's a great chapter. Really, it's a chapter that we could probably spend several weeks unpacking. It gives us a glimpse into the future, the glorious reality that our God wins. We're going to close with the song this evening, Bow the Knee.